0: You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigger with a library card. <laughs> this is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors, and they are talked about by a black author... And you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. This week on the show, we are finishing up the third part in a series on Emmanuel Ezie's On Reason. Emmanuel Ezie is a Nigerian philosopher. On Reason was the last thing that was published or that he wrote before he died in 2007, I believe. He was a professor at DePaul University. And yeah, the first two parts of this series are on the podcast feed, so you should go listen to those if you haven't and you're listening to this. I don't think it would make a lot of sense, unless you've read the book and you're only interested in this part. I don't know exactly what your deal is, friend. But depending, you should probably just go back and listen to those. That being said, we're not going to do an introduction to how I came to this book or anything like that, because uh, we already did those in the first two parts. Instead, we're just going to kind of take a look at what the last two parts of the book are trying to accomplish, and we're going to do that by going back to the introduction, and then we'll actually talk about the last two parts. Now, the reason I feel like it's necessary to go back to the introduction is, I thought there was a real through line from the intro to parts 1, 2, and 3. And then as I was reading parts 4 and 5, I thought, it's kind of lost the through line here. Like, where? how did we get to parts 4 and 5? So then I went back to the introduction, and I did a little rereading and I got what I had missed. So here we go. Here this is from page 26 in the introduction it says before in the idea of limit we were led to speak about epistemic failures of reason as a limitation in thought. Now in our acts of our own redescription I have invited ourselves to recognize in the same limitation sites of productions of language and of historical insights. And then he goes on for a little bit, and at the end says, Language and time are the origins of world and of history. Now, why is that important? What he's basically said is, uh, let me go back to that part that I first said, now in the acts of our own redescription, So, our own redescription is parts 1, 2, and 3, where he goes through and he talks about rationality and reason, and the diverse nature of them, and how there's not one type of rationality or reason. Then he says... I've invited ourselves to recognize in these limitations, sites of production of language and of historical insights. That's what parts four and five are about. They are about sites of production of language and historical insights. And it's about tying language to time and world and history, right? He says language and time are the origins of world and history. actually ties all these ideas together in parts four and five. And then in the very next section, he starts to talk about what all of this means And how he's going to go through it And he says he's going to go through a range of ideas And concepts currently deployed in debates Not only about identity and difference But also about culture, tradition, and history Philosophy and science, literature and the arts And politics, war, morality, and the law I do not pursue a comprehensive philosophical worldview However, this is more modestly one man's effort To practice philosophy as a critique of concepts And that's really what the last two sections are about him practicing philosophy as a critique of concepts. So, my aim here is just to talk about parts four and five, and in doing so, kind of talk about the parts where he's referencing sites of production and the uh, his theory of history, which sounds really grandiose, like he's Karl Marx or something, but you know what I mean. And then point out the parts where he's practicing philosophy, where he's just practicing philosophy. And I think that on my second reading, because what I did was I, I read through parts four and five, made a bunch of notes, highlighted a bunch of stuff, and then I went back, read the introduction, and then I went back and read all my notes and highlights. And on my second reading, things became much clearer. So I think I know when he's laying things out, why he's laying things out, and how he's practicing philosophy. I don't think he was really practicing philosophy in parts one, two, and three. So I think I guess that's the big difference here. Parts four and five gets into all of that. Stuff that he was talking about, culture, tradition, history, literature, the arts, politics, war, etc. The law, big one is the law at the very end. So, yeah, that's going to be what we're doing here, and there's a lot, so let's get to it. Alright, so section four of this book is called Languages of Time and Postcolonial Memory. In previous parts of this podcast series, what I did was I went through each section and each subheading, but I don't want to do that for this one, and I thought that these two sections sections four and section five, I thought that they kind of blend together more naturally. So although they're not, uh, the subject matter is a lot different in sections one, two, and three, which is really laying the framework for the practice of philosophy in sections four and five. I thought also like the type of writing and the, the subheadings were less necessary, whereas You really needed the subheadings to get through sections 1, 2, and 3. With sections 4 and 5, I don't think it's as necessary. So all of that to say, we're not going to demarcate what's in which subheading. We're just going to kind of go through in general with the sections. So, like I said, first section is called Languages of Time and Postcolonial Memory. The first thing here is that that sounds to me like the title of that Daft Punk song, Fragments in Time. I did not go through and compare lyrics, and uh, I don't think that that's where they got the title from. So as he starts here with posing a question, which answer is obvious by negation. It's like a proof-by-contradiction type thing in math where, you know, to prove the square root of 2 is irrational, you start with the assumption that it is rational, and then you start moving through there. And then once you prove that it can't be rational, you th- th- therefore it's irrational. That's how you do the classic square root of two proof. Uh, So what he asks here when he starts this is, what is the wrong kind of history that leads to colonization? So the purpose of this question is to point out the fallacy of thought that surrounded decolonization and this idea that basically African peoples were unfit to govern themselves because they historically lacked the ability to govern themselves. It wasn't a racial argument, it was a historical argument. That's, he quotes a a writer as saying that. So then he goes through and talks about, well, if that's the case, what's the right type of history? Or what kind of history leads a people and, you know, uh, gets them ready to be colonized, primes them for being colonized? Is this a thing that is true? Is this possible? He goes through all of this, and uh, that's how he sets up this section. Now, obviously, he, he he thinks that the answer is no, there isn't any. I, I, should, I should point that out. That's the point of asking the question, is to start out with such an absurd statement that proving it by contradiction, that is to say, proving that the answer is there is no such thing as a history that leads one to being colonized, proving that by contradiction is quite easy. So he goes through and does that through a number of ways. And first and foremost among those ways, well, first he needs to establish what is history. So... Uh, this is where the link between history, language, and time comes in. He lays out this concept that language describes experience. History is a form of experience. It's a written form of experience, and it cannot be recorded until time is dis- until time is established. So you must say that there is a past that existed before the present, which is distinct from how we necessarily interpret time. You know, on a day-to-day basis. We don't necessarily demarcate everything as this was 100% the past. Some things flow into the present, etc., etc., etc. But at at any rate, you must do this in order to lay out the facts of what is in an objectified history. Colonialism, then, is a disruption of this experience. It's a disruption of history. And it throws the entire experience, history... Uh, Etc. Into chaos, and in doing that, it hinders a people. He goes through and gives examples of how, by disrupting history, you're disrupting culture. By disrupting culture, you're disru- you're disrupting an entire people's process. And uh, he quotes many different African thinkers on the subject, notably Gujiwa Tiango, Chinua Achibi, and the Angolan political revolutionary Amilcar Cabral who said denying to the dominated people their own historical process necessarily denies their cultural process. He goes through and quotes a lot of different thinkers on the subject and talks about how this disruption in history and culture threw African societies into chaos. And then he asks, well, so this isn't a book full of um, lamentations on what happened. He's just simply explaining why If somebody in the mid-20th century would say, oh, it's it's a historical reason, it's not racism why we are doing this, he is explaining why history is so important. And I want to take a moment here to say that I thought it was refreshing that, as he uses African examples throughout the book, and uses them naturally. And what I mean is that when a European writer writes about Europe, it seems natural and perfectly reasonable that a European writer is writing about Europe. Nobody would accuse a European writer of being hyper-focused on their own situation and not taking in the broader view. When they write about Europe and they use European examples, that's just par for the course. There's no problem. But when an African writer does it, it might be seen as them concentrating too much on Africa or thinking only about Africa or not practicing broader philosophy. And I think I even fell into that reading the book where I was reading it going like, is this just him talking about Africa? How is this a broader philosophical idea? And then as I read the notes again to myself, I was like, great, no, this is a broad philosophical idea with, yes, some African examples, but European examples as well, South African or South uh, American examples as well. But if he had just had nothing but African examples, that should have been fine too. If he's wanting to use African examples to illustrate a larger, broader philosophical idea, which is what he said he was going to do in the introduction, that should be fine. If he wanted to write a book that wasn't that, then yeah, okay, obviously... Uh, You know, if he wanted to just write about Africa, then that would be fine too, but that would be a separate thing. But that's not what he's doing here. He wasn't just writing about Africa. This is an attempt to give a broad philosophical idea, which he is doing by bringing up specific African examples along with other examples and tying it all together. So I thought that was just an important thing to be cognizant of, because he saw that there would be a critique perhaps coming down the pipeline, and he headed it off in the introduction when he said... This isn't a book for the culture wars. I'm not trying to get in here and argue about the culture wars. This is a broader philosophical work. So you have to keep that in mind when reading it, and then just think to yourself, right. The concept that an African writer can write about Africa, but still draw broader philosophical can still draw broader philosophical ideas from it shouldn't be something revolutionary. That should just be commonplace. History has been disrupted, and what can we do? Well, As he goes through and he talks about how because history has been disrupted and because we've objectified history using European languages now, what else can we do and is there anything else to recover? And this idea of recovery becomes very important. Reinvention recovery becomes very important and language becomes very important because if there's an objective history, let's say, then what are we even talking about then? Then everything that happened already happened and there's nothing to go back and recover or reinvent, and this idea of disruption of history, why is it even important to bring up? All right, so first he goes through and starts talking about literary traditions in modern African uh, countries, and he brings up Chinua Achebe again, who says that art is an effort to create uh, for oneself a different order of reality from that which is given to one. An aspiration to provide oneself with a second handle on existence through imagination. And then he also uh, talks about the idea of a wisdom of experience. And this wisdom of experience thing, he draws this as a separate idea from objective history. This is not the same thing as an objective history. He writes, whereas the first idea of history aims at establishing truths about past events, the the second aims at recovering a wisdom of experience. Whereas in questions of truth, one expects or demands a fidelity to facts, the search for a meaning of an experience is, to the contrary, a search for hidden reasons why, beyond habit, a historical tradition might be deemed worthy of transmission. And this idea of transmission, that is transmitting something from the past to the present and continuing on this legacy, is an important idea that comes up a little bit later on too. But this, this whole question is all about perspectives and experience and what those things can teach us and why it's important to transmit those experiences, that wisdom, and those perspectives to the next generation. And all of that to say that, basically, let's just quote what, as he says here at the end, he says, The African fiction allows one to extend the problem of truth and history from questions about recovered facts of the past To the issue of tradition as in itself a form of historical experience. That is, tradition is itself a form of historical experience. You take that and you tie it in with what Achebe said earlier about art being a way to reorder reality. And what you come away with is this is as a practicing philosophy. I just wanted to point this out because, you know, I said I was going to. But this is him practicing philosophy. This is him saying there are literal different types of rationality and reason and different ways to rationally order the world. Even on a very just simplistic level, there are facts to history, of course. We can all agree that a war started on this date and that, um, I don't know, a country was founded on that date, etc. But the reasons that led to a war or all the factors that go into a country being founded are multitudinous. There's so many of them, and, you know, that requires an interpretive, uh, to use the Ezi term, the philosophical term, or human, a hermeneutic understanding of history. It's not exactly what he's talking about here, but the point is, is that even just on a very basic historical level, you would agree that it's not all cut and dry, just facts, that's it. So then to, it doesn't take much to go from that perspective and jump to the idea that although there is a time when we can demarcate the disruption of African history by European powers, there's more to it than just that. There's more than just one story to be told. And this idea of more than one perspective is so basic to, I think, the way I understand the world. That sometimes I take it for granted, especially when I'm talking to students. And again, to go back to my coworker who is teaching Things Fall Apart this semester, you forget that it has to be taught to people that, like, well, what if you were in the shoes of the people who were being colonized? And so that was an interesting thing to talk about with students this year, and mainly not really me because I teach math, but with my coworker who's teaching Things Fall Apart, to talk about having to really explain that to them and not being able to get it across. And so she also brought in that, that piece by Adichie, and we excerpted, excerpted a little piece from Howard Zinn's A People History of America. And yeah, just trying to get it across that you can see things differently. Which is not exactly what I think he's getting at here, but it's at least in part what he's getting at here. Uh, at least in part. My, my version of it is a little bit too simplistic, but you know, what can you do? All right, so from this establishment of the, the idea that history is a cultural process and that it was disrupted and that there's still other types of history, that is wisdom of experience, that are valuable, as he starts to talk about language and its importance in history. Now, we already talked about the link between language, experience, history, and time. We're not going to go through that again. But yeah, he talks a lot about like Gujiwa Tiango and his... Efforts to preserve African language and why it's important, and so he goes through. And here's an example of him using other uh, other people's history, other other countries. He talks about Hannah Arendt, Kafka, Nabokov, Borges, Conrad, and Beckett. All these different people who are writing in different languages. Well, Arendt's not writing in a different language, but she's talking about what it means for a German Jew. To write in german to use the language of the oppressors and then kafka was writing in a different language other than his mother tongue navikov did it too obviously with english uh i don't know what borges i thought borges wrote in spanish conrad was polish he wrote in english beckett is irish he wrote in french extremely voluntarily like uh beckett wrote in french and then on purpose so that when he translated it back to english it would Because he he couldn't use uh, the same level of French that he could in English. So when he translated translated back into English, it would be stripped of all of its... What's the word I'm looking for? Ostentatiousness. Um, Ostentation? Interesting. Uh, So yeah, so he talks about how that's different, though, than what's happening specifically with African writers. Because there was less of a... Specifically in the case of Nabokov, Conrad, and Beckett, there was less of a... uh, there was no forceful aspect to it. They were in some way choosing to do it. And that's not really what happened with African writers. But then from there, so so the reason this is important though is that the death of a language means the death of an ability to transmit a certain experience, a certain history, and a certain set of values, right? If we if you remember that link between language and history and time. But there's a chance for things to be reinvented. So he goes through and he says how the most successful and least nihilistic of modern African writers are the ones who are trying to in some way incorporate African language into their writings or they're trying to, he specifically says writing in the time in italicies of African languages and how these experiments in modernity as stories of fragile traditions, broken and however imperfectly, reinvented reinventing traditions and then in page 203 he also says something similar he says uh the african writers i have discussed in this act of reinvention of the possibility of experience itself they write as if to recreate conditions of possible existence i just thought all this was interesting because uh, this act of reinvention and the idea of having to resurrect language traditions you know at the turn of the 20th century by the time the turn of the 20th century happened, Hebrew was a dead language. I believe that was true. Yes. And then Yiddish was being, especially in like America, for instance, Yiddish was considered a, a ghetto language that people shouldn't speak. And then Yiddish more or less died. And then Hebrew was readopted as the official language of Israel. And I think, I mean, I've got the timeline a little screwed up, but that's more or less what happened. Hebrew died for like a, I want to say, like, I feel like it was about 150 years. And Yiddish was still around, kind of filling in the gap there. But it wasn't a written language so much. That's not exactly true, because it definitely was. But it definitely wasn't like a... wasn't considered a nice, formal language. It was a vernacular, broken language was the idea behind it. And it definitely was something that, as an immigrant, people didn't want to speak because it made them seem like they weren't assimilating. But then... So then it gets shunned and goes by the wayside and then eventually Israel becomes a country and when it does it adopts Hebrew so Hebrew becomes reinvented and becomes the language again and Yiddish is now dead and we'll see if Yiddish gets reinvented or whatever. It's just interesting because that that's happened you know like twice in the space of like 200 years where one language becomes the dominant language of The spoken vernacular, at least, and there was Yiddish theaters, and there were writers who wrote in Yiddish, but it was definitely like the popular language. Hebrew kind of dies out, then Hebrew gets resurrected and reinvented, and Yiddish was like forcefully killed. So I don't know if it can ever come back. You know, it'd be interesting to see. But what happens is that when those things go by the wayside, you lose. Something, something's lost, an experience, a set of values, a set of traditions, they're lost. Another example would be um, here in China with dialects, which are not dying out by any means. Like in my city, we speak the Nanjing dialect, but you don't speak it in schools. You for sure speak Mandarin in schools. And as that happens, what's going to happen is that you're going to lose some of the phrases, some of the experiences, some of the traditions of what it means to be. person from Nanjing that's just what's going to happen so yeah I just thought that was really interesting and something that I'm like seeing firsthand it's something that I've read about in other countries so interesting interesting idea so then the last part of this section that I thought was cool was there is a uh, a Fulani myth and I'm just gonna read it here it's it was recorded by a German man whose name I can't pronounce so I'm not going to pronounce it in a book called origins of life and death And it says, In the beginning, the sky was large, white, and very clear. It was empty. There were no stars and no moon. Only a tree stood in the air, and there was wind. The tree fed on the atmosphere, and ants lived on it. Wind, tree, ants, and atmosphere were controlled by the power of the word. But the word was not something that could be seen, it was a force that enabled one thing to create another. And then as he goes on and talks about how this is similar to, like, the biblical idea, and I actually, I remembered the passage, so I just looked in up in my Bible. I'm not religious. I have a Bible, though. And when I say I'm not religious, I mean I'm not religious at all. I don't believe in anything. So in the beginning of John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I just thought this was interesting because it gets to the point of the last chapter, which was that language was or is existence. Everything that is in language is existence. And then he extrapolates out from here and starts talking about how, what the absence of word might mean in different philosophical traditions, what the absence of word might mean. So he talks about Hegel and Sartre. Hegel, I think, is the first person to use that term nausea. Sartre obviously wrote a book called "Nausea." And as he goes through and talks about how this idea of not having any word means not having any concreteness, it's just formless, it's nauseating, you can't get a hold of it. And then he talks about Tangor and what he thought uh, a concrete existence could be interpreted as, and he has three different ways to think about this. I don't want to go through all three ways. It's not really important, and I don't really want to sit here and argue about them. What I want to point out is, this is another example of as he practicing the philosophy that he set out to lay the groundwork for in the first three chapters, right? So he sets out the groundwork in the first three chapters of here's different types of rationality and reason, and then here's another example of him pointing out, hey, look, there's more than one way to interpret the uh, concreteness of existence or lack thereof. So, yeah, just thought that was another example of it in this section. All right, so I went long on that section because that's the one that I thought was the most interesting, and actually... You know, I I really didn't feel that way when I was first reading it. I was really quite confused by the section. And then when I went back and reread all the notes and stuff and highlights, I was like, oh, wow, that had a ton of good stuff in it. So just goes to show you, you know, always read books of philosophy twice. All right. The last section is called Reason and Unreason in Politics. I don't have a ton of stuff here, just a little bit, which is also another reason why I went longer on the last section. Uh, here, what as he basically does is he runs through politics, law, a few specific cases in South Africa, some different literature of South Africa, a lot of South Africa in this section, and really practices the philosophy that he was laying out in those first three sections, just like I said. So he opens up this section by saying that African intellectuals believe in a distinction between politics, philosophy, and morality, a distinction, not a separation, and then he Goes and talks about, though, although uh, these things are separated, there's still interplay between them and definitely an influence on politics and morality by philosophy, and there has to be. Okay. Just pointed out some things that I liked. There was a quote in here that I thought was just really great. He said, Tradition is nothing more than human effort to conserve and transmit the universal through particulars. It has nothing to do with his larger point or that's not exactly true but it, i just thought that that was a really insightful quote that i just love tradition is nothing more than a human effort to conserve and transmit the universal through particulars and as i as i'm set to go through spring festival which is chinese new year it's a very good example everybody love and we're doing spring cleaning right now but of course it's not called spring cleaning exactly in chinese but uh You know, everybody has this idea of a new year, new beginning, new possibilities, and that's a very particular thing, but it's actually extremely universal. Literally every culture has it. Some cultures have more than one new year. Right now we have the universal new year that we all celebrate on the first, but there's a Jewish new year, there's a Chinese new year, there's a Persian new year, because they they have their own calendars that they follow. Uh, I don't know if the indigenous people of America still really get down with the calendar that they used to have but maybe they do that too in some communities and yeah it's this universal idea transmitted through particulars uh, or transmit the universal through particulars as he said okay and then he goes through and talks about standardizing languages here his point is to discuss language as tradition and how quickly these traditions are solidified and then overturned and how much upheaval comes with language, and he brings up Hume, David Hume, the philosopher, and how he was lamenting in the 18th century, like, how bad English was, and how there weren't standard dictionaries for it, and how Jonathan Swift had the first polite prose, but there was no dictionary for it, and that's bad, and all of this stuff, and his whole point here is just that, like, when you compare what's happened with English over the last couple hundred years, you really shouldn't feel like we can't do the same thing with Yoruba or Igbo, excuse me, Yoruba or Igbo or Zulu or Swahili or any language. There's no reason why this can't be done. Uh, it, it, it can get done if English was able to do it in a couple hundred years. Comparatively, the fact that African languages already have so much, so many resources, because it's the 20th century, able to do it a lot quicker. The fact they only have so many resources doesn't mean that this tradition can't be carried on. You know, so he was just pointing that out. And all of that made me think of a KRS-One quote from a hip-hop song. So really a KRS-One lyric. Uh, He says, Because rap is still a brand new tool. I say no one's from the old school. Because rap on a whole isn't even 20 years old. That's how it kind of sounds in the song. Because rap on a whole isn't even 20 years old. Very old school cadence in that song, I remember. But, 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 shouldn't say old school. KRS-One says there's no old school. Even now, rap as a art form is only 40 years old, so still not, not all that old. Okay, those two things aren't necessarily related, but I don't care. That's what I thought of. And then, uh, okay, so yeah, so he talks about language as tradition, and then from there he goes into an analysis of some South African writers, Krog, and I realize I've never said Coetzee's name out loud, so I don't know if it's Coetzee or Coetzee. I've, I've never said it. I've read, what is it, Disgrace? And that's one of the books that's talked about in here and he uses the writings of Krog and Coetzee, hope I'm saying that correctly, if it's Coetzee or some other pronunciation, I'm sorry, but he uses their works to talk about the different mindsets of Africans and quote-unquote Westerners, and what it means to be African, what it means to be a Westerner, etc. There's a lot to get at here, but the part that I want to focus on is his rejection of African exceptionalism. And... Let's, uh, let's just read this quote really quick. It says, It is simply not enough in philosophy or in politics to sacralize or aestheticize the everyday. It is even more unsatisfactory to try to do so, romantically or tragically, in the name of an African exceptionalism. How this ties in exactly with the literary works that he was talking about is not all that important, but I just thought it was important to point out that as he it's kind of like that Baldwin quote so it made me think of the Baldwin quote so I'll pull that up really quick Baldwin said I don't like people who like me because I'm a negro neither do I like people who find in the same accident grounds for contempt and I thought that's similar to what Ezzy's trying to get at here his point is it's neither ex- we don't need african exceptionalism where we look at africans as like some having some you know tie closer to the earth or some better understanding of some more mythical understanding of uh what it means to be alive, something that's ineffable and inexpressible. And we also don't need to look at them as like backwards, um, primordial people who can't govern themselves. A thing that we could look at them as is, and this is revolutionary, what about if we looked at them as people? That's wild. All right? so that's kind of the same thing that Baldwin's saying. What if, what if we just thought about black folks as being people? That'd be crazy. Uh, so, yeah. So, that's one of the things he talks about here. And then and, and in all these sections, he's you know practicing that philosophy that he's talking about. So, then he does it again with revolution. There's another section here where he talks about revolution. And this is another uh, proof by contradiction thing where he says, like, if revolution is necessary, as people say, then does that mean that the conditions for creating the necessary revolution are also necessary so like is it necessary to have dictatorships and despotism and tyranny is that also necessary so you wouldn't say that so why do we have to say revolution is necessary despite what thomas jefferson said he doesn't quote jefferson but i think it was thomas jefferson who said that a a people need to have a revolution every couple of years so as he goes through and it's kind of similar to what he does with the uh with the question of um african exceptionalism Where it's like, I'm not saying that we don't need change. What I'm saying is, it doesn't have to be revolution or no revolution. What if we just have something right through the middle of there? I'm not saying that Africans are exceptional or not exceptional. I'm saying, what if we just say they're people? And then, so he does this again with apologizing at the end of the book. He goes through with South Africa and talks about their national forgiveness plan. It's kind of the same thing here, where he goes, justice doesn't have to be either penal or uh, I can't remember the other the other version of it, um, but there's not one there's not only two concepts of justice, there's more, and so this entire section is him broadening these ideas, our ideas of revolution, our ideas of forgiveness, our ideas of what it means to be African, our ideas of language and language as a tradition. These things can be broader. we don't have to have such a narrow view on them. So I thought that last section was really good. There's just a lot of examples, and they're all very particular. So yeah, I just wanted to touch on them briefly. Lastly, I'll say about this book that I am absolutely 100% shocked that there was not a coda. Uh, I really wish there was a coda. I don't know if I needed the coda. Like, I mean, it's not like... It's not like I couldn't understand what was happening just through my own reading... That being said, I feel like it would have benefited from something that just kind of tied tied it all together at the end. So, if I had one complaint about the book, it would be that it was lacking a coda, and that I think there should have been kind of a demarcation between parts 1, 2, and 3, and parts 4 and 5. Uh, something that didn't require me to go back and hunt it down in the introduction. So, you know, maybe... It would have been more like theory and praxis, right? The parts one, two, and three are the theory and parts four and five are the praxis, or case studies, or something like that. But okay, that is the end of this three-part series on Emmanuel Ezzi's On Reason. A really good read. Tons of great stuff in here. Very insightful. I think the broad philosophical ideas, I really loved those. Like, I... I legitimately have had to go through and look up some of these concepts and read through them out of just pure interest. You know, when I said I've had to, I mean, I've been compelled to. So those are awesome. Then just the casual African concepts or not even concepts, excuse me, uh, casual African like uh, pieces of culture that I didn't know about that he's just referencing, you know, casual like European philosophers get to. That's been great, too, because then I'll be like, oh, I didn't know about that guy. Oh, I didn't know about that book. Oh, let me go read that thing. So that's been awesome, specifically the Hatata. That's something I'm going to dig into. So I loved that. And, um, yeah, a real tragedy that this man was lost to us uh, before his time. So he lives on with his book. He said at one point, we never know if language is for the living or for the dead because we don't know if languages will continue to go on. Some languages die out. Currently, this language is still alive, his book is still alive, his words are still alive, so you can still dig on it in that way, and hopefully it stays that way. Okay, I will be back in two weeks with something different, a piece of fiction for sure. It was going to be Marlon James's Moonwitch Spider King, but the release date got pushed back, so we don't have that yet. So it might be... let's go ahead and go with it. Let's go with Chimamanda... Adichie's uh, Half of a Yellow Sun, which I think is the only book of hers I haven't read. So that'll be cool. So yeah, maybe we'll do that. Probably going to do that. If not that, then something that came out in the last couple of months. But yeah, okay. Until then, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading.